coming up on Tech Nation, look around you right now. Anything man-made has been created with intentional color, from the paint on the walls, to your clothes, to your screen. And humans have been working to make color for millennia. Wired journalist Adam Rogers talks about his book, Full Spectrum, how the science of color made us modern. Then, making headway in treating nerve damage. For some time now, the options have been limited. At best, losing other nerves in your body to repair the damage. Axogen's Karen Zatterday tells us what's now possible. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with UC San Diego professor Dr. Ajit Barki about denial, self-deception, false beliefs, and the origins of the human mind, which he wrote with the late Danny Brower, a genetics professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. The question that Professor Brower posed to him nearly two decades ago now was this. With millions of years of evolution, why do humans have such complex mental abilities and other species do not? Instead of asking the usual question, which is what genetic differences or brain differences made us human, Danny turned the question on its head and said, uh, you know, there's a lot of very smart animals and birds that have been around for tens of millions of years and that are quite uh, capable of uh, remarkable intelligence, and yet there's only one human-like species. So how come there isn't a human-like elephant or a human-like crow by now? And his idea was the sort of the opposite of what you might normally think, that something was stopping everybody in their tracks and that we finally escaped and broke through. The first thing we always think of is self-awareness. But animals are self-aware as well, right? Correct. So, in fact, that actually supports the theory that is that uh, there's very good evidence in chimpanzees, uh, pretty good evidence in dolphins and some in elephants and some birds that they know who they are. They can recognize themselves in a mirror. Of course, we can never put ourselves in their heads, but there's pretty good evidence that they, are, they have a sense of personhood. They know who they are. That's been going on presumably for tens of millions of years. The next step beyond that is what we only be humans do, which is that uh, I not only know who I am, I know that you know who you are, and that I know that you know who I am, and so on. <laughs> and that the audience that may be listening to us uh, knows who we are, and that what we're thinking, and we're thinking of what they're thinking. So that's this thing called theory of mind. So the question is, uh, why didn't all these other species attain this? It sounds pretty simple, right? You're aware of yourself, or you're aware of the awareness of another self. And the basic idea is that the first time this happens to an individual in a species, the very first time, right now it seems very beneficial to us, but the first time it happens, it's actually a very negative thing. Because once another individual of a species dies, then this individual becomes aware of his or her own mortality. And that would be a very nerve-wracking and potentially an existential crisis. Most importantly, that would uh, diminish the chances that individual would mate and pass their genes on. And so that would be an evolutionary dead end. Now, this is the part of the theory that we cannot absolutely prove, obviously. We are saying that 
these things happened and went into dead ends. And the idea is that we humans finally slipped through by learning to deny our mortality, which made it possible for us to tolerate this knowledge of the deaths of others. You know, there's studies on chimpanzees that say that they recognize other chimpanzees as what's called intentional agents. In other words, they recognize that's another chimpanzee can react to me and so on. What the chimpanzee does not seem to be able to do is to put itself in the head, literally in the mental state of another chimpanzee. The ultimate test of that is what's called a false belief test. In other words, suppose somebody told you a lie, and I listened to that, and I knew that you had the wrong idea in your head. I would know that. In other words, I'm putting myself in your mental shoes, and that's something that uh, the other animals seem to fail at. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Dr. Ajit Barkey, who, with co-author the late Danny Brower, wrote Denial, Self-Deception, false beliefs, and the origins of the human mind. Today, Dr. Varkey is a distinguished professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and co-director of the UCSD Salk Institute for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. Yes, anthropogeny. It's the study of human origins. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, humans and color, how we've intentionally made it for millennia, and how the technology of color has been one of happenstance and discovery. Adam Rogers is here with his book, Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Then, nerve damage, or rather, nerve repair. Thought possible only by transplanting a person's own nerves, it seems like those challenges have been solved. Karen Zatterday, the president and CEO of Axigen, is with us. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Adam Rogers. Well, Adam, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, the first thing you figure out reading your book, is that all the colors of all the man-made things around us are man-made. I mean, you have to learn how to make that color in the material it's in. Uh, It's intentional color. Intentional color is a technology. The thing that really kind of astonished me while I was reporting the book was realizing that that there are these multiple worlds of color that we, when we talk about color, we mean a bunch of different things. And sometimes it's hard to parse which one we mean, because sometimes we're talking about photons, you know, subatomic particles streaming from the sun and hitting the earth that reflect off of surfaces. And sometimes we're talking about the things that happen in our own minds, what happens when our eyes and our brains process those, those subatomic particles, those wavelengths, however you want to talk about those, and form like a, a cognitive view, a cognitive 
image of the world that then exists in our own heads. But sometimes we're talking about surfaces and chemicals and, and sometimes biochemistry and sometimes material science and all of the ways that human beings for at least 100,000 years have taken natural materials or synthetic materials that we made ourselves and turned them into colored things that we could then apply to those surfaces, to the objects around us to, to create the built environment. And the technology of, of making things have colors stands between them as a kind of interface on the world. The first thing I want to ask you is how far back do we have evidence that man was intentionally trying to make color? I mean, is how far back does that go? Well, people are familiar with, with paintings on rock surfaces, on cave walls, things like that. But I, I actually started the book. One of the early moments in the book happens in an archaeological dig in South Africa on the coast in a cave called Blombos, where the, the researchers there, led by a guy named Christopher Henselwood, um, find, you know, the, the further down you dig in archaeology, the farther back you go. So they dig down, I think it's like 20 meters. They get 100,000 years back and they find these two abalone shells. So abalone are big mollusks. They have that inside kind of nacreous surface, the like mother of pearl type surface, it's very smooth. And in these shells, they find um, stones that are ground to fit really well on the inside of that surface, like pebbles, and also a ring around the inside, like the ring on the inside of a coffee cup or something uh, made of ochre. So ochre is iron oxide. It's a, a mineral, and it can range in color, red, yellow, some purples. If you look at Mars, Mars is an ochre-colored world. And you see a lot of it in the American southwestern desert, for example, too. So... And they also found traces of something called trabecular bone, which is like the spongy bone in your spine. It's like bone and blood and cartilage all mixed together. So it's really gooey. So what the researchers concluded is that they had found a toolkit, a workshop for making, as they said, paint, for combining a pigment, for grinding a pigment to the right size particles, because that's one of the keys to making something have the color that you want, and then mixing it with something gooey to stick it together so that you can apply that to either a person's body or to the wall or to an object to make something have the color of ochre, the, the oldest known paint workshop found. So there might be older ones too, but this is 100,000 years old. So that's a lot of human history of trying to take things and make them make colors out of things and put those colors on stuff, right? Do we have a sense for what colors they were working with? Yeah, well, the ochres are pretty well understood chemically. The ochres will give you a red and a yellow. There's a couple of different mineral forms. It's a little confusing because if you heat the yellow, you get red. So if you see, or I may have that reversed, but you have to do the chemistry on the color to make sure that it's not the one or the other that they've been heated. But of course, that's another technology, right? Is the application of fire to this pigment that you have to make it have a different color. So you get reds and yellows and some purple and some brown. And then you also use um, usually uh, like carbon, you know, soot for a black. Um, sometimes you can use a magnesium based mineral for a black as well. The things you would find in the fire. And then also for whites, you'd use a calcium carbonate, a ground up seashell or chalk, kale and lime, a lot of calcium carbonate whites out there. So you get a, a black and a white and then a red and a yellow and, and maybe a purple and maybe a brown. It's, it's fascinating to me too, because the there, human researchers have tried to for thousands of years, certainly since ancient Greece, at least in the West, tried to put colors in order to figure out what the order of colors were before Newton found that visible spectrum. He found like, what, what order do colors go in? And Plato's version of that went from black to white and then also kind of had red and yellow in it. So the, the platonic color order, the platonic spectrum, if you will, looks a lot like what our 100,000-year great-great to the ex-grandparents were using. Well, I have to say it's the first time that putting myself 
back there 100,000 years ago, that that world had colors in it, you know, and intentional colors. I mean, I never really thought about it in those sense, you know, that though it was all very natural, everything was sort of brown and green and tan. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. well, it's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, of course, because they, so you and you you got to figure like, OK, well, they could see the human beings the, the had essentially the eyes and the brains that you and I have. So they could see the colors that we see, assuming we and they have what, what people call color normal vision or, you know, the kind of color vision that most humans have. Right. So they could see the blue of a sky and the green of a tree and the, the red of a, I don't know, berry, whatever. I don't know. Right. So there's a but there's a disconnect for for tens of thousands of years in human history between the colors that people could see and the colors that they could make. The palette, the human palette was much more limited. And in fact, part, it's sort of skipping to the end of the book, but part of what the book is about is this explosion of colors that happens in the 19th and 20th centuries of artificial colors that then better reflect the world around us. So we have our eyes and we have our brain sensing the color and we have light coming off color, uh, off things, creating this color. Light could change the color. But I think what's very interesting to me is you say uh, that's about humans, but it's also about anything with eyes. In fact, they're all looking at various spectrums. You write, we never know what the butterfly sees. Butterflies see set different spectrum than we do. They do. Um, the butterfly eye is super weird. It's one of those insect eyes with multiple facets, but then it's got this like long kind of protein architecture with the photoreceptors studded around it. It's a wild thing to look at, just like butterfly wings are a wild thing to look at. So what we what we call the visible spectrum, we call it that because that's what Isaac Newton called it when um, after building on the research of Arab scientists for hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, and then people in the early Middle Ages of trying to figure out essentially what a rainbow was, really, was what it came down to. Was how do rainbows work and how do colors change from one color to the other? And what is that thing? And at the kind of pinnacle in 1665 of that research, Isaac Newton, who is on the run from a pandemic uh, and doing work from home, basically, we can all empathize with now, has gone to do work in study in his mother's house. And he closes up the shutters, pokes a hole, famously puts up these two opti- two versions of this new optical technology called the prism that he's managed to acquire and breaks the white-yellow light of the sun coming into the room into these multiple colors. And he, because he's kind of an alchemist and a, and a Neoplatonist, decides that there are seven of those, or maybe eight, to fit an octave, a musical octave. He wants to be sort of a mystic about it. And he names them what we think of today as these those, those primers, the red, orange, yellow, uh, red, orange, yellow, green, Wait, Roy G. Viv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Right. And then he wraps those into a circle. <laughs> Good and, work. <laughs> and, and thank you. I know, right. And connects the red and the violet with purple. He sort of invents purple to fit in there. It's not really, it's an extra spectral color. But the reason that Newton saw those colors and not others is that Newton had an eye like we have, which has four photoreceptors built into the back of it in an, in an array. One of them is designed just to sense light and dark, but three of them are designed to sense colors of different wavelengths or different energy energy levels of the photons. He didn't know any of that stuff yet, though he had some ideas. But other animals will have eyes with photoreceptors that are similarly similarly constructed, but tuned to different wavelengths, essentially, to different peak spectra. They'll absorb and re- they'll absorb different kinds of light. So the mantis shrimp, just little, you know, little mantis shrimp under the ocean, uh, has 12 photoreceptors. You and I, if we're human color normal vision or what are called trichromats, tri- we have trichromatic vision, have those three different photo- photoreceptors for colors. Most birds are tetrachromats. They have four. The mantis shrimp is a dodecachromat, I guess, which is 12. 
and also sees not just with more of those receptors, though they might not see more colors, more individual colors than you and I do. It might be, have something more to do with speed and perception and hunting. But they also trail out into the infrared and the ultraviolet also more than our photoreceptors do. So they're actually seeing potentially not just more gradations of color, that's one hypothesis, but also farther out on the edges. So other colors that are just invisible to us. Birds similarly, and insects for sure, will have photoreceptors much more tuned into the ultraviolet. So they'll see these beautiful glowing flowers. We don't see them as glowing at all. We don't see the ultraviolet streaming off them. We can simulate that with cameras and lenses and, and Photoshop filters and stuff like that. But, it, but it's very, very hard for us to quite literally get into the heads of animals seeing with a different visible spectrum, what we describe as the visible spectrum. It's a very human-centric way of looking at the world, of course, which, because we do. Animals, the, the perception of an animal, one researcher just called this an umwelt, um, is the German word for it, is all of the things that our consciousness perceives. And trying to figure out other animals' umwelts is a real challenge, because um, we have a hard time figuring out our own. It's hard for you and I to exchange language that gives an accurate sense of what colors you and I are seeing. That's why linguists like to talk about color, too. Well, I have to say, I'm still sitting with uh, the uh, idea that ultraviolet is coming off of flowers. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> they're, they're, they're very well structured to bounce ultraviolet to the kinds of eyes that can see into the ultraviolet. You know? Interesting. And you can, you can catch it a little bit. There. You can see some of that luminosity late in the day when the sun is low and coming through more atmosphere and, and the, the light sort of has, relatively speaking, more ultraviolet in it than it did when it was at the top of the day. And you kind of go for a walk and look at flowers in the spring and they'll, they'll pop a little more than they do. And I like to think that that's a, at least a hint of the way a honeybee is seeing the world. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn and my guest today is Adam Rogers, a senior correspondent at Wired. You may know him from his earlier book, Proof, The Science of Booze. He's here today with Full Spectrum, how the science of color made us modern. So I missed your booze book. I just can't believe they didn't ask me to. I'm such an I'm expert. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the science of booze here. How was it developing that book and writing that book versus this one? This is just color and that's booze. <laughs> you know, I see more overlap than, than, than a lot of people do. I have to admit, I, I, I will say both of them, uh, you know, they both took me a long time to do and they're both long time obsessions. And, and I'm one of those people apparently who grinds on things that I, I, you know, I really, I have to, I get so obsessed that it's like, oh, there's so much to say about these things. Um, the place that they, that they meet, I think is in the, is in the place where our senses, where the human senses are transducing something out in the world into something that we can understand. So the booze book has a whole chapter on smell and taste. And that's partially about the kind of delights of going to Scotland and sitting in a distillery tasting room and experiencing all of the you know, walking through a distillery and smelling all of the ingredients that go into a whiskey and then getting to taste it at the end and perceiving all of those things in their in faint evanescent hints when you taste the whiskey on a beautiful, you know, in the Scottish countryside or whatever. And all that stuff's great. Like, I love all that. And I love the theater of it. But I also love the idea that when you're, the, the chemical senses, smell and taste are actually taking a, a physical thing, a molecule of the, of the whiskey that's touching some part of your tongue, a receptor in your tongue, or these receptors just behind your nose and, and the nasal epithelium, and that your nerves are your ner nerve endings, literal nerve endings from the brain are taking those sense impressions and converting them into neuroelectrical signals that the brain can do something with, can tell you, like, I'm tasting a really good glass of scotch right now. The sense of vision, sight, 
is a little different because it's not taking a, a it's not taking a molecule of the thing that you were looking at. Although there was some theories early on, Rome, elsewhere, Plato sort of thought this that like beams of light were coming out of the eye and then bouncing off of stuff and then bouncing back into the eye. But what's happening there is that we're actually those nerve endings, essentially those receptors in our eyes, are able to, in a subtle way, perceive the quantum universe. And they're looking at subatomic particles that change something conformationally in the back of the eyeball, and that that is able to send a signal into the brain. So for me, there actually was some overlap in the idea that the my, my sense of having a great glass of whiskey, and the difference between that glass of whiskey and a not great glass of whiskey, or that glass of whiskey and a glass of wine or something, our ability to construct those experiences is really very similar to the ability to construct an experience out of looking at a at a Monet, let's say, out of the, the Cathedral at Rouen, the series of paintings that Monet did that are sort of famously about an optical property um, in some respects uh, called color constancy, because the color of the cathedral changes by the time of day that he's painting. One of the things that the Impressionists were very good at being able to do because they were the first folks to have like portable oil paints that they could take out into the world was painting the colors that they actually saw instead of the colors that our brain infers are there. Our brain's really good at guessing what color something really is. I'm making scare quotes with my fingers, even though it's an audio medium, sorry. And, and so what Monet was doing was essentially a commentary on how the eye and brain construct color over a series. And when we're looking at those paintings, if you, if you go to the, um, you know, if you go to Paris and look at those paintings all in a row, you're having a, a, an experience that Monet is simulating for you of what it's like to see color in the world. Um, that sense experience. So for me, the, the, that's a little bit like having that good glass of whiskey, I suppose. That's where I, that's to me where the two books overlap. I don't know. Maybe the next one will be about music. <laughs> yeah. You can feel, you can feel really great reading this book about color, but don't drive afterward. No, no, that's, I got, I got your books confused. I got your books confused. Now, one of the places that we know early on had great color uh, were the many eras of the Chinese and their work with porcelain and their work in, in, in all of those, those areas. Uh, and I was drawn to that because of a uh, 1998 discovery of a shipwreck that had an incredible amount of porcelain in it. This is in Indonesia. And there, I mean, it's quite the story. Let's, let's go there. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing tale. Um, the, the, the ship is now called the Belatung shipwreck. And, uh, it's found off the, in the waters of Indonesia by some sea cucumber divers originally. Um, and it turned out to be this amazing find because it came from an era where there hadn't really been maritime archaeology before, which is the the Tang era in, in China. It's like the 700s and 800s, it's a time of great um, of great art and and political change, and it's it's one of the heights, one of the multiple peaks of the Silk Road. Um, when 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 I was learning history uh, as a kid, I think sometimes when we, they would teach me the history of of let's say Western Europe in like the seven and eight hundreds, and it was kind of wars and mud. And I feel in a little in a way that that for me at least we were looking at the wrong part of the globe. If we had just moved the globe a little bit to be able to look at this incredible thousand multiple thousand mile route connecting these two great poles of civilization of Peking and the Abbasid Empire and and the roads that the traders took to create those civilizations and connect those civilizations because they were based in large measure on colors. 
the colors of the textiles that they um, would that they would trade, the actual pigments that they would trade, the things that they used to make those colors, and then on the water because these things are heavy, using boats to move ceramics around, and eventually porcelain. And in the um, in this Tang era shipwreck, the Belatang wreck, some of the things that were found included these beautiful um, what are called uh, uh, whiteware porcelain from kilns in in northern China, northern China where they had access to a material now called kaolin. So calcium carbonate white. And if you can figure out the technology to get your kilns hot enough, and you can figure out how to mine that stuff out of the ground and form it into beautiful shapes, it turns into this wonderful resonant when you, when you, you know, clang your finger against it, it makes this resonant ding and a material that has properties that nobody had seen before. It's light, it's strong. It, it becomes kind of a killer app um, of the day because nobody has anything that can do this before. It's not glass. It's not metal. It's not wood. It's something new. Um, so the ship's full of that. It also has some of what are called blue and white wear, which is porcelain from other manufacturers, also white with this beautiful blue color on it um, in different designs. And what the um, what the wreck uh, allowed archaeologists to do, though it was controversial because of the way it was recovered, was kind of date some of that to a more appropriate time and have more of those kinds of samples to examine and understand its importance. Um, and also to try to think about it in bigger sense, um, one of the great controversies right now in, in porcelain and the history of it is to try to figure out kind of who invented that blue first, whether the Abbasids had their, whether the Abbasids got their blue from Chinese blue, because the Chinese had a really excellent uh, blue pigment that they had figured out how to make, or whether they had invented their own based on that blue pigment, because the Abbasids had a long history of glassmaking and they were making some blues as well. So to try to do the chemistry on these shards and figure out, well, who had the blue first? Um, because if you had the best colors, if you had the best things, if you had things with the best colors on them, that made the trade more valuable. That was one of the things that drove the entire Silk Road for a thousand years. Well, you talk a lot about white in the book. I mean, white is a tough, tough color to come by, which I used to be told isn't a color, but it turns out it is. White is a color. Um, and uh, one of the places you start was in Cornwall. And a discovery in Cornwall, England, yeah. uh, that that has affected us all. So let's let's go there. The dainty Victorian tippy toe of of the British Isles in Cornwall. Yeah. So uh, one, a, a great color writer once described white as the mother of all hues. The, the the question is whether white is all the colors mixed together as it is in sunlight, or whether white is no colors like on a piece of paper, I guess, or whether it's a color of its own accord and whether you're talking about an amount of light or a color, but okay. So in Cornwall, um, in the late 1700s, well, Cornwall is interesting for a lot of reasons. It's a, it's geologically fascinating. It has a lot of different kinds of weird minerals in it just because of the way Cornwall formed, um, when the continents were still cooling off. Um, so like when we talk about the bronze age in Europe, a lot of that bronze came from Cornwall, was dug out of the ground in Cornwall. And it's still true even today. There are mines there that will pull out like rare earths for electronics. But because of that geology and that, that industrial geology history, there have always been people in Cornwall who are just really good at looking at dirt. Um, and that included a lot of, in the late 1700s, kind of people who wanted to become scientists. So instead, they became priests because there was no such thing as a scientist yet. But priests could have a little lab in the back of the rectory or whatever. So it was one of those people, a guy named William Gregor, who got sent by some friends who lived in a town called uh, Menachem, um, a sample of dirt that they had recovered from the leet of a mill. I've been speaking with Wired journalist Adam Rogers, the author of Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. We'll talk more after a break. 
podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, replacing nerves that have been damaged, not from another part of your body, they're someone else's nerves. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers, the author of Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. A guy named William Greger, who got sent by some friends who lived in a town called uh, Menachem, um, a sample of dirt that they had recovered from the leet of a mill. The leet is a little, is a, like a t- small canal, a little stream that you dig off of, a, off of another river, a creek, to run a water wheel for a mill. And, in, and those water wheels work a lot like panning for gold. They, they'll, they, they disturb the dirt and they'll, they'll, they'll kind of filter out different sizes and shapes of, of the earth that'll be in the, in the riverbed. They found some dirt that looked a little bit weird and they sent it to Gregor. And Gregor did a bunch of experiments on it, poured acid on it and stirred, mixed it in with other stuff and all those things he does. And, d- and determined like, yes, this was in fact a new mineral that nobody had ever seen, a new material. And he, uh, because he had discovered it, named it Menachemite after the parish where it was discovered. And then everybody forgot about it. <laughs> Didn't matter. He published in a, one of the first um, scientific journals, not the Philosophical Transactions, famously the one from the Royal Society, but it's called Krells and Allen. It's a, it was a German journal. And then uh, some years later, like, ten, like a decade later, another much more famous chemist, the, arguably the inventor of analytical chemistry, in fact, Martin Klaproth, had another sample of dirt from the Hungarian Alps. And he found the same thing. Um, he didn't realize that he had. He, he eventually gave Gregor some credit for it, but he named it the thing that everybody knows because he'd already named one element after an, after a Titan um, from Greek myth, uranium. So he said, I'm going to stick with the Titan theme. I'll call this one titanium. And again, everyone forgot about it, even though it was the ninth most common element in Earth's crust. But nobody knew what to do with it. And in fact, most of the time people tried to get rid of it. So well into the late 1800s, if you were trying to make steel, a lot of one of the problems you might encounter is that you had titaniferous ores. Your iron ore was titaniferous. It had titan titanium in it. And you wanted to get rid of it because you're trying to make good steel. But there was a, a metallurgist who'd had some experience with those Adirondack deposits that were full of titanium where he, he started, his name was August Rossi. And he started to think that if you had enough power, you could actually build a kiln that would make a, an alloy, a steel alloy that included the titanium and would be stronger. You can make rails and stuff out of it. So in order to do that, in order to make those kilns, he went to what was essentially the Silicon Valley of the late 19th century in the United States, um, which 
was Niagara Falls. It was Niagara Falls because that's where the electricity was that you could do electrochemistry. So you could found Alcoa there by breaking aluminum off of oxygen and making making raw aluminum something cheap. You could break salt from mines into sodium and chloride, and then you would have the chlorine that you could make bleach, which enabled municipal water systems to purify their water supply and let cities grow. All kinds of really important basic chemistry of the 20, early 20, late 19th and early 20th century happened because of advances at Niagara Falls, which is where Rossi was working. And while he's trying, not entirely successfully, to make a uh, titaniferous alloy, he realizes that one of the intermediate steps of his process creates this beautiful bright white powder from the titanium. It's titanium dioxide, one atom of titanium, two atoms of oxygen. And Rossi, knowing that there is a market for pigments, especially white ones, which is currently dominated by the National Lead Company at that point, because everybody's using lead in their pigments like lead paint, which works really well, except it's incredibly toxic. And they knew it even then. They knew it as far back as Pliny's time in ancient Rome. Ben Franklin wrote letters about it. People knew lead was really a bad scene. Uh, Rossi famously dips his finger in some salad oil, he says in the book, um, and then into the white pigment and runs his finger across the page and realizes he's got something new. This is titanium dioxide, which becomes the fundamental, not just white pigment for the 20th century, World War I kind of gets in the way of production, but then they spin up, um, but also becomes a, a, an ingredient in almost everything else that human beings make that has color. Because you need something that's opaque and that's bright, that has a high refractive index to give those other colors brightness and good coverage ability. So it goes into paints and it goes into paper and it goes into ceramics and it goes into eventually plastics and it goes into even candy coatings and pill coatings and um, it becomes this ubiquitous, uh, this ubiquitous mineral, this ubiquitous molecule in the in the built world, and that's where I got obsessed with it. You can tell I talk about it too much, but I, that, that's where I got totally into it because I was like, this this stuff is everywhere. It's what makes the world look the way it does, and it's essentially a hidden a hidden truth about <laughs> the, a secret of the universe of why things look the way they do. And it was invented there um, in that well, 1890s, 90, early 1900s um, in Niagara Falls. Still used to eighteen billion dollar a year industry. Uh, I was just saying, I'm, I'm looking around today. I'm looking at white paper here. I'm looking at this little oil heater here. I'm looking at the the white on the console here, the mixing console, the little paint that's been carefully stenciled on. Are the odds that there is this in there? That's almost certain. Yes, it is almost certain. So it's been all around us. Yeah, that's right. And we can actually consume it if it's in the coating of pills. Just ask. You can no, you totally can. Yeah, it's it, it's it's there is some there's some concern. European regulators are, are looking at this now that the that the nanoscale particles may have some respiratory impact, but those are not what's in the but in the in, in the in the microscale particles that are in pigments, the micron scale particles. There, it's like inert. Um, so yeah, you have you have certainly eaten titanium dioxide. I may have titanium stored in my body in various places. Okay, I see. <laughs> now, does that have anything to do with the other colors we're used to seeing, and as you call it, the built world? Very much so. For for it, it went at both a sort of basic and kind of t like the most dunderheaded level for sure, because it's also mixed into paints. So the other paints that you buy when you go to the um, when you go to the paint store and you buy paint because you're going to repaint your bedroom or whatever, like. That's mostly titanium dioxide, in addition to the other pigments that they use to give that 
give that stuff other colors. That's right. It starts out white, and then they squirt in three greens, three number That's four, right. five, you know, then all of a sudden it comes out the, aha. Um, and so, yeah, and, and that's true for a lot of coatings and, and services in a lot of different businesses uh, and at, you know, different sectors in the world. Um, but also it has to do also broadly with this thing that happened in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, let's say, where um, the ability to manufacture, to synthesize new both organic and inorganic pigments really took off. So one by one researchers count, like just the number of available pigments doubled, you know, in the early 20th century. So things could have more colors. The, 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 the palette, the human palette expanded, the gamut of colors that we could express expanded radically. Um, and that had a, an impact on a bunch of different things that changed, it changed the way that literally changed the way the world looked, of course, but, but also it, it changed, for example, industrial design. So in the early 20th century, um, uh, people started to first use more like more commonly different colored lights in performance on Broadway and in dance. There was a dancer, a woman named Lloyd Fuller, Fuller, who, st- who did these elaborate choreographed dances with colored um, like scarves and colored lights to change the color that people were experiencing. And that uh, became more and more popular on Broadway and off Broadway. And the designers who, who were designing those shows were people like Norman Bel Geddes, who's one of the great industrial designers, because his skill with color and with the way things looked came into, came into demand because companies knew that they could keep making stuff for people to buy, but the engineering wouldn't change as often as they wanted people to buy those things. The technology for a refrigerator or for a locomotive just doesn't change every year. So the way you would inspire people, inspire, the way you'd get people to buy it again was to have more colors of those things. And the designers really understood that. And so that, you know, that industrialization coincided, was contemporary with the availability of more of these colors. So the world it was what it's what one historian uh, described, I think, lovely, in a really lovely way as a chromatic revolution, um, where the world that we could build started to actually have, it seemed like, as many colors as you could see in the natural world that you perceived around you. Now, one final question. Actually, I have two, but the real final question is, <laughs> the the second to last final question is, what about the colors on our screens we look at all the time? Is it limited to what colors are possible? Are there a standard set of few that we use? I mean, is how rich are they, or how limited are they? In the um, in the last, I mean, call it twenty years, I guess. The, the kind of color, the, the, the literal kind of color that most people spend their time looking at has changed. What we've been talking about are pigments, which are things that you apply to a surface, light reflects off of and refracts through those and then bounces back into our eyes. So those are, those are, um, those are reflective or subtractive colors because they absorb some wavelengths of light and reflect others. But the colors that we see on screens are, are what are called emissive or additive colors. They're emitting colored light at us that goes into our eyes. And one of the big um, things that people fight about in colors is what the primary colors are. Which colors do you need to mix all the other colors from? Um, so in light, there's all you know, there's every wavelength of color in there, and you can separate those out. But maybe when you were a kid in school, they told you it was red, yellow, and blue were the primary colors. But like when you mix blue and yellow paint, you're supposed to get green. I always got brown. And when you mix red and blue, you're supposed to get... <laughs> Purple, but I always got 
brown. Because what's going on is that it's, <laughs> it's subtractive pigment. You're losing light. The, the less and less of the wavelengths are getting reflected back out. Um, in a screen, the primaries are made of the pixels that emit light, and those are red, green, blue. Not coincidentally, the same uh, peak wavelengths that the photoreceptors in your eye are, are most tuned to. Um, with, usually with a white one, too, to add a little bit more light, just overall light um, of all colors, plus the colored light. And, you know, in, even in the time that you and I have been using computers, those screens going from monochromatic to the UHD super retina, whatever that, that Apple describe it, of being able to expand the gamut of colors that the screens can express to try to cover as many colors as the human eye can see. And they're pretty close now. It's pretty close to all the colors. It's not exact, which is why some, some uh, electronics folks and engineers and designers are talking about adding a fourth primary pixel color to monitors to capture even more of that gamut that the eye can see. The eye is still a little bit better than the best monitor. Well, I do have one final question, and that is... Tell me you're not colorblind. <laughs> I have I have color normal vision for a human male of my age. <laughs> All those things That's do change. That's good to know. Because if yeah. you had been, it'd be like, hmm, what's, yeah, what's going on there? About? What's going on there? The scientists, who, the scientists who originated the study of color vision, many of them actually got into it because they themselves were colorblind or they were studying colorblindness. It was a way to do natural experiments. So John Dalton, one of the inventors of chemistry, um, wrote about his own colorblindness and what that meant for seeing colors. Because he grew up in Manchester in England, which was the center of the Industrial Revolution textile industry, where dyeing those textiles was critical. And he realized he was seeing the colors of threads differently than people around him. Unbelievable. There are so many stories in here. We've just touched a few of them and uh, really enjoyed it. Adam, thank you for joining me. And uh, I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you, Mara. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. My guest today is Wired journalist Adam Rogers. His book is Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. When we learn we have nerve damage for any reason, accident, surgery, medical condition, our options have been very limited. Those options now appear to be changing. Karen Zatterday is the president and CEO of Axigen. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maura. We all know that we have nerves, especially when we hear that we or someone else has nerve damage. Uh, uh, but but give us a sense. What is a nerve and where are the nerves in our body? Well, think of the nerves as the electrical uh, wires throughout your body. They carry the signals from your brain to tell your muscles to move or to tell your brain about the environment. They give you sensation, vibration, temperature. All of those things are signals that are carried on nerves. And of course, they're everywhere in your body. Everywhere you have sensation, everywhere you have muscles, the nerves might be located there. So if you have pain, the pain comes from the nerves telling the brain there's pain here. Yeah, that's one of the signals that they send is that signal that says something here hurts. So absolutely, uh, they are in your arms, legs, fingers, um, throughout the body. And that's really great until it breaks down. What causes a breakdown in this nervous system? Well, there can be a lot of different causes. We focus on the things that physically 
impact a nerve versus uh, systemic diseases. And physically, it's things like traumatic injuries. Um, In fact, uh, there are lots of ways that traumatic injuries can hurt a nerve. Uh, The most common things we see are power tools as people are doing home projects, uh, lacerations, so using a kitchen knife or getting cut on something sharp, uh, and also glass, falling through glass, putting your arm accidentally through a glass window, All of those are ways that the soft tissue is damaged, but a nerve can also get cut. Uh, They're also injured a lot of times in surgery. Uh, As they're cutting to access something that's important, uh, they may cut through nerves because they need to do that to access uh, a, a little bit deeper. So think of a tumor removal. In tumor removal procedures, many of the complications associated with that are actually nerve injuries. They're not because you had a tumor. It's because in getting to the tumor, they needed to cut some nerves. So if you have facial paralysis after a facial tumor, that's because of cutting a nerve to remove that tumor. We keep thinking of the wound itself. Is the wound going to heal or is the cut going to heal? But actually, we can't even see the nerve. These are really tiny things. Yeah, they're pretty tiny. Surgeons can see them under a microscope or magnification while they're doing the surgery. Uh, So they are small things that are in the body, but they're very important things because they give you all of that function. What do they do now if someone has nerve damage? Is there anything to be done? Well, today it is a surgical procedure. When a nerve is cut, the surgeon needs to do something to bring the two nerve ends together. But they have some challenges with nerves. One of the challenges is that they can't pull the nerve ends together. Uh, Nerves don't heal well that way. So they have to do something when there's a gap between the two nerve ends to bridge that gap. And that's very common in surgical procedures, again, with that tumor or in trauma. So very often they have to think about this solution for gap uh, resolution. And the most common thing they do today is they take a nerve from somewhere else in the patient's body to fix a nerve that's more important than the one they're sacrificing. So for example, the most common nerve that they they take is the sural nerve, and that gives you sensation for the top and side of your foot. So you as a patient would say, well, it's really important that I move my right hand. Uh, That's my dominant hand. I want to use it. I'm willing to have a numb foot to be able to move my hand. On the other hand, if it's to give you sensation in your lip, you may or may not think that's more important. And that's a very personal choice each patient would have to make. But that's the gold standard. That's what people do today. But that also has serious side effects. I mean, when we're talking about diabetes, one of the problems we have with advanced diabetes is that we lose sensation in our feet. And that's very dangerous. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a choice uh, between two bad options, actually, to do that. So you're absolutely right. Having sensation in your feet is important for wound care. It's important for balance. Um, it's important for uh, even understanding your, your, your full being, being able to feel where your foot is so you don't trip and fall. So all of those reasons are a good reason to have sensation, especially in your feet. Uh, But again, if it allows you to be able to use your dominant hand, then those are choices that you would have to make, or at least historically would have to have been made. Now, now here's where oxygen comes in. Uh, Now, explain to us, you're making it possible for someone else's nerves to be implanted into your body. How does this work? Yeah, it, uh, absolutely. So we look at this and see that the the best structure and the best way to uh, repair a nerve is using using a nerve. But 
using someone else's nerve historically has had problems. One is it's a, a that the tissue could be rejected. Uh, you don't really need or want to do immunosuppression for something like a nerve injury because there's so many risks of complications from immunosuppression. So in order to make sure that that nerve from someone else can be used in your body, you need to do things that remove that immune response. But historically, when that's been done, uh, and people have tried to do this since World War II, actually, historically, when that's been done, the outcome was very, very poor. And so today, uh, we've solved those problems uh, so that you can take a nerve from a, a, through the tissue donation process. So this is, uh, you may recognize this with organ and tissue donation in many states on your license. You can elect to be an organ or tissue donor. One of the tissues you might be able to donate would be nerve tissue. That tissue would be donated. It goes through a, a, a special process to prepare it for being safely used as an implant in another patient. And that can then give the solution to allow that nerve to be repaired without having to sacrifice another nerve in your body. Uh, and so, so do you just wash the nerve? Aren't I, aren't I really advanced here? <laughs> you, you just like just pluck it out, shake it a bit put it under the water, stick it in another person. This has got to be more complicated than that. Well, there are some technical challenges that had to be overcome, and it is a little more technical and, and challenging than just washing the nerves. So what we end up doing is that there are certain, there are cells that cause that immune response, and we need to break those cells and extract them from the nerve. And one of the interesting challenges of nerves is because they're so small, getting those cells out of the nerve can be a, a real challenge. And that's one of the, the obstacles that has presented this or prevented this from being done in the past. And uh, in our method, we've identified this uh, method of extracting the cells while preserving the microarchitecture of the nerve. So nerves are made up of hundreds and sometimes thousands of little tiny tubes that actually support your regenerating nerve fibers. And you need those fibers or those tubes to be in place because they provide a road for the nerve fiber to follow. And so in extracting these cells, we wanna preserve the road so that they have a path to follow. We also want to preserve certain biochemical cues that tell the nerves what direction, the nerve fibers, what direction to grow in. And so that's another component that has to be carefully monitored in the process. And then uh, lastly, there's uh, certain proteins that shut down regeneration. Just like in people have generally heard in spinal cord regeneration, there are certain proteins that stop the spinal cord from regenerating those same proteins can be present in the peripheral nervous system. And so uh, the method that we have inactivates those proteins that inhibit or shut down regeneration. So we remove the stop signs that prevent nerve fibers from regenerating. And that again, allows the body to look at this implant and basically think of it as a three-dimensional blueprint to just rebuild the nerve. The nerve fibers, it populates with cells, the nerve fibers grow through it and ultimately you get your sensation or movement back. Now let's get back to the patient. When do you do this? Uh, what do you do? How do you go about this? How do you even know about it? Yes, yeah, sooner is always better. That's one of the things I think it's very important for patients to recognize is nerves heal better when they're repaired relatively quickly 
following an injury. So it's not truly emergency, but typically you would want your nerves repaired within a few days of being injured. And so uh, seeking a specialist quickly would be important. Um, typically these come with trauma. So you would present into the emergency department. Um, they would address all of the trauma, not just the nerve, and then refer you to a hand or plastic surgeon to do the reconstruction on the nerves. So you would expect that there would be a surgical procedure, again, generally in two or three days following that injury. And how do you know that you have the right people? We all go to the closest DR, you know, when we have a problem. How do you know? Well, um, as funny as it sounds, hand surgeons, even though it may be an injury that's not in the hand, are trained on this procedure. These procedures are called microsurgery because, again, nerves are small, so the, the surgery is often done using a microscope to actually see the nerves. And hand surgeons are trained on this microsurgery and can do nerve repair really across the body. Uh, also, uh, most plastic surgeons who do reconstructive surgeon would be trained. Surgery would be trained. So this is going to be a special but typically your OR or your, uh, excuse me, your emergency department would be able to refer you to the right person. Uh, or if it's something that uh, you're seeing in other types of procedures like surgeries, you can ask to see a specialist like that. Uh, an example uh, that we work with is in, um, in the surgical area is in breast reconstruction. Uh, in breast reconstruction, when a woman has a mastectomy because she has cancer or prophylactically has her breast removed be because she's concerned she will have cancer, uh, they cut all the nerves as they remove the breast tissue. And when they have a flap reconstruction, historically, they have not uh, repaired those nerves. The woman will have really a very nice look in terms of the breast from a breast reconstruction. The, the skill in this area is very strong and people get really uh, good outcomes. But for the patient, you don't feel the world. You don't feel things on, on your whole front of your body. And, uh, and that can be disconcerting. What about when you, when you hug your grandchildren? Right. If you hug your grandchildren, you can't feel your grandchildren. That's that's kind of a big deal. You want to be able to return back to being normal and feel your children or feel your grandchildren. And so in that case, it would be good to, to ask a surgeon if they do breast uh, neurotization. Um, there are a number of centers that do, but it isn't everywhere in the country. So if that's important for a patient, it would be something they'd want to ask about. Now, I know you're approved in Europe, uh, but let's talk about the United States. You're not everywhere in the country, uh, but what does that mean? Because we have these kind of approvals nationwide. Yeah, so uh, the products uh, are available in the United States as well as several countries outside the United States. But as an evolving technology, uh, it, we're in different stages of being adopted by surgeons. We work pretty closely with uh, the fellowship program. So fellowships are where a surgeon learns their specialty. Uh, so they go through medical school, residency, and then fellowship. We work with the fellowship programs today and actually train about three quarters of the fellows every year. Uh, so that they can see these new techniques and advances in nerve repair. And we're working diligently to continue to branch out and expose the surgeons who were trained before this so that they can see and, and have awareness about these new technologies. And would some of this information about how one either finds hospitals or surgeons, would that be available on the oxygen site? Yeah, there is an oxygen site that has a find a nerve surgeon locator on it that will be able to give you identification of somebody by zip code in your area who does nerve surgery. 
Um, there's also some patient-facing websites that may provide some additional information on breast neuritization. It's called Resensation or Resensation.com, uh, where you can see uh, women talking about their experience in the in the whole process of getting breast reconstruction, including the search and decision making on breast neuritization, and also in the area of surgical pain uh, or of nerve pain uh, and the surgical treatment of pain. Uh, there's a Rethink Pain website that can give a lot more information information on, uh, on considerations if you suffer from chronic pain and helping to identify if the source is actually a nerve. Well, this isn't a drug and it's a natural product. Is there an FDA approval process for this? I mean, where does this fit in? You could do a whole brand new surgery that you dreamed up if you were a surgeon. FDA doesn't get involved. It's like, okay, go ahead and do whatever you're going to do. It's like, where are, where are we in that cycle? Yeah, these are these types of technologies have extensive engagement with uh, with the regulatory bodies in each country. In the U.S., it's the FDA. Um, this product is provided today as human tissue for transplantation, but actually, and interestingly, we are transitioning it to be a biologic, which is a type of drug. And it is because as we look at this, there's these very strong biological cues that help the body really reform the nerve. And uh, so we are in the process of transitioning this to be a full biologic with the FDA, and we'll be submitting that BLA in 2023. So available today as a human tissue, but advancing into the BLA. Process. Karen Zatterday is the president and CEO of Axigen. More information is available at oxygeninc.com. That's Axigen, A X O G E N, Inc., I N C, oxygeninc.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.